0: Well Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the wonderful gift of this beautiful weather and the wonderful gift of a brand new week. And we ask your blessing upon us as we study your word. We pray that this time would be enriching, not just for us personally, but also collectively, that we would new, learn something new about not just the book of Acts, but about what it means to be disciples of Jesus today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay hey John is do you see Okay so today we are looking at Acts chapter 8 with Simon and Philip and we'll start with Simon two different characters here now a certain man named Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he was someone great. All of them, from the least to the greatest, listened to him eagerly, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they listened eagerly to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed After being baptized, he stayed constantly with Philip and was amazed when he saw the signs and the great miracles that took place. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet the Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given to the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have no part or share in this, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may happen to me. Now, after Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, proclaiming the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, I'm going to stop there and offer a few notes. And please pay attention to what you observe and notice. Write down your observations and questions so that um, what you bring to the table can enrich our mutual learning. But a few things to note. First, we have something happening in the city of Samaria. And we recall in the Gospel of Luke, Luke, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan is the hero of that parable, but it's worth reminding everyone that Jews and Samarians were enemies, right? And so whenever we have this saying about how even the people in Samaria accepted the word of God, um, and that the kingdom of God had come to Samaria Make sure you understand that as code for the great enemies of the people of Israel. The great enemies of the covenant are now included in the life of the church and that the spirit will come even to them, right? Samaria is not just a geographical region. It's also a theological symbol of people who were at odds with the people of Israel. We also remember the woman in John chapter or John chapter four, I think the woman who is thirsty by a well saying, give me something to drink. And I believe that that was in Samaria as well. Okay. So Samaria is a symbol for people who are against the people of Israel and they're being included in the church. And in Samaria, there is a man who has a lot of power and magic called Simon. And it's going to raise the question, what is the difference between spiritual power and magic? Are they the same thing? And of course, the answer is no. One of the things we'll see is that magic is always instrumental to human purposes, whereas the spirit is the outworking of God's purpose. Magic is something that enhances us and makes us great, right? That's what they said about Simon. This man is the power of God that is called great. But the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And so the Spirit is not here to make us great, but to take us with Jesus to the cross in service to the world. And these people in Samaria who are obsessed with Simon's magic, they believe the good news about the kingdom of God. Both men and women are baptized. And just note that footnote about men and women being baptized speaks to the inclusivity of the gospel. Not only are Sumerians included in the covenant people, but women have an equal role. And, you know, you and I take that for granted and that's a a sign of health, I think, that we take it for granted in today's world. But in Luke's world, this was not taken for granted. It's a good thing and a different thing that women are gonna receive um, the same status as men in the community. And then we're told even Simon himself believed. Now, this is interesting. Simon believes, but his heart isn't fully changed. And so we're going to have to talk about that here in a little bit. And after he is baptized, he's not necessarily converted instantly into the witness that all of us are called to be because he's obsessed with the signs and the great miracles. In other words, he wonders whether or not the church can kind of enhance his magic show. And that's going to play out here in the subsequent verses. I think it's worth noting that, you know, Simon is obsessed with the signs and the great miracles. I think this raises a question for all of us. Why is it that we are attracted to Christianity in the first place? Is this about us? Is this about the great display of power or the great feeling of comfort we get? Or is it about something greater? Um, For those of you who have studied the gospel of Mark, you know, the messianic secret, Whenever Jesus does a big healing, people say, Are you the Son of God? He says, Go and tell no one. And it's only on the cross when the centurion says, Truly, this man was God's Son. So in the Gospel of Mark, you have this great rhetorical device where anytime Jesus does a great miracle, a great sign, and they say, You're the Son of God, Jesus says, Go and tell no one. But whenever he's on the cross, that's when the centurion says, truly, this man was God's son. And that's Mark's way of encouraging us to associate the power of Jesus, not with signs and great miracles, not with magic, but rather with this spiritual power that would lead to Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, now, I think it's also worth noting that even though all these people are being baptized, that we still have some order in the church. You have the 12 apostles, and as we studied last week, you have the seven deacons who are appointed, even though Luke doesn't use that word. And the apostles have to verify what's happening. Yes, the Spirit is at work, but there's a balance, I think, between the novelty of the Spirit and the confirmation of the apostles to basically say, yes, these people are in. And I think that raises some interesting conversation between us because ideally there's a healthy tension between the activity of the spirit, which is wild and free and boundary breaking by design, and the discernment of human beings and the order of the church. Um, We kind of have a picture of what churches look like when they get in an unhealthy balance between the two. And so, you know, think of maybe a, a Pentecostal church, for instance, you can imagine one where anything goes, right? Someone says, the Spirit of God told me to do this, and so they do it. And then you think of a different church where no one actually believes in the Spirit. It's all about the rules, regulations, and what the bishop says. And I think what is being manifested here in Acts chapter 8 is this very healthy tension between the Spirit being on the move but the apostles still confirming the work of the spirit and setting some boundaries. And so just want to name that. And it might be something you want to talk about here in a bit. Um, Peter and John have to lay their hands on those who receive the word of God, right? The apostolic confirmation is important. And only then do they receive the Holy spirit. Only then are they fully uh, welcomed into the church. Simon, however, then kind of steps onto the stage. And in a sense, Simon is like the opposite of Ananias. Not opposite in the sense that he is someone who gets what's happening, but whereas Ananias was holding money back, um, Simon basically says, I'll give you all the money you want. I just want in exchange the same power you have. And so this is really Luke's way or the author's way of saying, you know, you can make an error on both sides, whether you're holding back your money or whether you're trying to pay for the gift of the Spirit. It's not really about that at all. It's about obedience to what God is doing and recognizing how the Spirit is at work in the church. And I think it's worth noting that Peter, you know, he's a little bit softer on Simon than he was on Ananias, even though we said that Peter didn't kill Ananias. He just kind of said, you know, you're going to die. And then that happened. Um, he does at least give Simon an opportunity to repent. Uh, and he says this great line. He says, uh, Simon, um, I can see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. I think that's one of my <laughs> favorite things in all of scripture. What a great line. And then Simon says, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may happened to me. Now, a lot of people are curious, is this an authentic prayer? And was Simon's conversion authentic to begin with? Some people have said that this is a prayer that really mirrors the prayer that Pharaoh prays in Exodus 10, 17, where he says, oh, do forgive my sin just this once and pray to the Lord your God that he may remove this deadly thing from me, right? Pharaoh asked Moses to pray for him, but Pharaoh actually never had any intention of fully following the Lord. It was always about what's in it for Pharaoh. And the question is looming, is Simon's prayer sincere? Was his conversion sincere in the first place, or was Simon always in it for himself? I don't have an answer to that question, but I think y'all might have some uh, interesting perspective to bring to that. And then, you know, uh, we have this great summary statement at the end. Now, after Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they went back to Jerusalem, back to kind of home base, proclaiming the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, remember, um, when these same apostles were following Jesus and Jesus said, hey, let's go through Samaria. Um, they said things like, "Hey, Lord, do you want us to call down fire to consume them forever you know hey lord you 're not supposed to be speaking to these Samaritans, and now these same apostles have been transformed, and they gladly welcome the very people that they weren 't able to welcome when they followed Jesus in his earthly life, and that speaks to uh, the transformation that 's taken place uh, in god 's people so i 'm going to go ahead and stop there i 've talked enough and see what all y'all are thinking about.
1: It seemed to me that, um, you know, in answer to your last question, it's like, was this prayer, and I know it's a rhetorical question, but you know, is this sincere prayer? And it just seems to me that he kind of jumped to um, the conclusion without taking any ownership for what he'd done or even recognizing what he had done. I mean, it was just, um, it was almost like uh, a toddler saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know, without fully uh, recognizing it's like, wow, I did this. And um, to use your illustration in your uh, chapter, you know, it's like, oh, no, you know, I spilled my juice. I know that was wrong. And, um, um, and that was, I didn't hear that
0: in the reading. Yeah. 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 It's important to note that the author is limited. You know, he can't do justice to any one character, but it does come off that way. It comes off like, hey, uh, this gospel here is instrumental to me being a better, uh, magician. Oh, I got in trouble. You know, Peter slapped my wrist. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, it does come off that way.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mary maybe that doesn't matter because as the spirit goes to someone, the spirit could leave. I mean, this is, this is not magic. This is spiritual power. And perhaps that's an extension of the, the, again, as you did in the other thing, the one way love of Jesus, because he knows, but he can still do it. and, And it's, to me, it starts to sit like, um, you know, take it till you make it, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that by being a part and being given this love and being given this spirit, um, even though Simon might not have been as sincere as he should have, or really, well, really should have been, he might learn from it anyway. And it, and it becomes transforming just in that.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, it raises the question and, and y'all can reflect on your own spiritual journey. Can y'all hear that echo? Hear that echo. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me let me put it on. Pause. Yeah, it's really bad. But I'm sorry. Before the technological difficulties, what I was going to say is that it makes me wonder: Does anyone ever make a decision to follow Christ or to be part of the church initially for deeply pure motives? Um, you know, so for instance, whenever I was 17 years old or 16 years old, I forget, I really felt like faith was something that became very personal to me. And I was very interested in following Jesus with my whole heart. But, you know, like looking inside the psyche of a 16 or 17 year old, um, I'm sure there were some selfish motives there. Maybe I needed more self-confidence or maybe... Uh, I was scared and just needed some more personal security, or maybe I thought that it would make me happier. I mean, nothing that's like bad in and of itself, but there wasn't this mature, I'm here because God has a claim upon my life and I'm willing to go wherever God leads, irrespective of how I feel. I mean, that's not something that was a thing for me when I was 17 years old. And it's probably not fully a thing for me now although I'm a little bit closer in that direction than whenever I started my spiritual journey. And so it kind of raises the question, you know, Simon, obviously his motive is so purely selfish, right? I want to be a better magician. I'll pay you money, give me some power, but it does make us ask the question, you know, uh, I think to Mary's point, maybe making a decision for Christ or, or following Jesus, like it always has some mixed motives in there initially, And then only over time does becoming mature actually happen. So that's more of a question than a statement. I'm wondering what y'all think about that and what your experience is. Mary?
2: Um, Yeah, when I saw that question written, it was just like, wow, because I think even more to the point that you're making, having been raised in a Christian family, I just have, I have always been. Now at a certain point, I take it upon myself to be intentional about working, understanding my relationship, um, more spiritual formation. So that happened somewhere, but I've, it's been even since I've been at St. Michael's that I've really come to understand more of God's love and more of the Trinity and more of, I mean, more of everything, but I can't say why did I ever go there? I mean, I never, I mean, I now make a conscious decision, but I never had to not make that decision. So that question sort of, I don't know what it did to me, but it was an aha, just the question itself.
0: Great. Who else? What, what, what is y'all's experience? Thank you for that, Mary. Mary's
3: optimistic spin that Simon learned from his rebuke from Peter, because I, you know, this is a familiar story um, for people who've grown up in, in a church or whatever with Bible studies and i've always wondered what happened to simon because it's one of those stories that the author leaves incomplete in my opinion and and i i'd like to think that simon finally understood that this was not a power that could be bought and sold this was not magic and you know i wish i wish we had a hint as to what direction Simon went after this rebuke. But I think that initially many people were attracted to this new uh, way because of the signs and, and miracles. I mean, who wouldn't be impressed if someone raised your daughter from the dead? I mean, you know, come on. But if you stay around long enough to to get, to dig deeper, uh, Simon wanted to stay with the superficial and say, give me this power, you know, initially. And, but I think that the, I think that the miracles and signs were important because you had to get people's attention
0: first. That's right. This is not the same Simon as, as Simon the Tanner. And, nice. and by the way, you know, whenever we have these stories, I mean, this is one of those This is one of those instances. It's kind of a a great um, uh, device that Luke, as an author, uses. We don't know what happens to Simon, and in a sense, we're invited to be Simon, and then to say we get to write our own ending. You know, like uh, to you know to basically say how does this story end? Well, it's going to end basically with with choices I make because I'm then going to take up the mantle of Simon and. I'm going to hear this word spoken to me. uh, And then we resolve to basically make our whole life about repentance, not in the negative sense, but in the, I'm going to learn what it means to follow Jesus sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, where do y'all think today that either, where do you see it in our world or maybe in your own life where people think faith is really about magic? There, there Yeah. So I think it's, I really appreciate all those comments. I think, you know, we don't need to go into it, but I think it's really always good to look into our own life and to say, where do we see faith as magic, right? Not someone else. And by that, obviously, you know, we don't see faith as magical in the primitive sense, but, but where do we, you know, the, the whole idea of the spirit is that the spirit is free the spirit is free to work a healing. If the spirit wants to work a healing, the free, the spirit is free not to work a healing, but it's not a magical formula whereby if we do our part, God then owes us a certain outcome. Um, and so I I do think that even though like Simon is this character who is just so overtly greedy, um, for spiritual power, um, it does invite us, I think, to look inward and to say, do we see any of that in our own heart? And if so, what does it mean for us to repent? Just a survey question. If any of you come to me with some kind of issue and I were to say to you what Peter said to Simon, uh, to say, ah, I can see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the chain of wickedness, would that be effective? I've always wanted to try that. I wow. don't I know. I know. Some grown-up <laughs> words, John. <laughs>
3: that be a short conversation.
0: I, I'm, I'm not ready to try it out, but one of these days, we all have our bucket list, you know, before we retire as clergy. That's, that's on my top five. I'm going to say that to someone one of these days. So yeah. just know, if that's you, um, you can let me know if it doesn't work. Um, all right, well, why don't we keep reading and we can come back to Simon, okay? Uh, but let shift gears and talk about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch because in the same way that like last week we had Luke contrasting Barnabas who sold a field and gave the whole thing to the apostles with Ananias, part of what Luke is doing is now contrasting Simon the magician um, with this Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, so I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen and we're gonna read this eunuch's story. And I don't have a lot of notes here um, because this is not one of those stories that lends itself as much to a didactic teaching. It's more of an imaginative thing that we find our way into. So pay attention to what you notice and what this evokes for you. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, so we're shifting gears. Philip's just brought onto the scene. Get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to the chariot and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before its shearer, So he does not open his mouth, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is some water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of God snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So I'm not going to do a lot of teaching on this story. I attached a chapter of a book I wrote where the chapter was all about evangelism, using this story as a template for evangelism. So maybe some of you read that and want to discuss aspects of it or just the story in general. But just a few things I want to note. Again, what is similar in this story versus Simon the Magician is that of the outsiders being welcomed. And so, just when you think you can't have more of an outsider than a Samaritan um, or a Samaritan, uh, you have an Ethiopian eunuch, and this is like a double whammy. And so uh, if you read the Old Testament, they're not always really kind towards the Ethiopians. And so an example would be Zephaniah 2:12, where it just says, "You also, O Ethiopian, shall be killed by my sword." right? For some reason, the Ethiopians got in bad with the people of Israel at some point, and they were among those that they just assumed God would exclude from the salvation of the world. But here you have the Ethiopians, the enemies being brought in. And on top of that, this person is a eunuch, um, someone who uh, has probably been castrated in order to serve As the court official of the queen, which was often a requirement in antiquity, but this is a seeker. This is someone who is leaving Ethiopia to go worship in Jerusalem. He is looking for the God of Israel. And you have this scenario that my guess is that you've never actually had an opportunity to share the gospel where someone says, sit next to me and tell me all about Jesus. But it's set up this way so that we can get. Uh, an example of what it means to bear witness to our faith in Jesus. And so really what you have from Luke's perspective are two different things happening. On the one hand, again, the stage is being set for this ultimate outsider, someone who was far away from the covenant to be brought in. And then you also have an example of what it means to be a witness, because how does this whole thing start with Jesus telling the 12 and others you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And that mantle of being a witness to the resurrection belongs not just to the 12 apostles, but also to us. And so what we have here is an example of what that could look like. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and pause there and see what comments, questions, thoughts you have reading about this story or reading the story. Mary.
2: Um. So he is, the the eunuch is an ultimate outsider, an ultimate person that's different, but there's not any question in this story about his seeking and therefore feeling like he can and wants to be a part and the response by Philip to baptism, he He just, he says, what's to keep me from being baptized? And immediately they jump down and they do that. And I don't know, they do it as it's that living the, Maybe living the transformation versus talking it, because the rules were there. They all—I mean—they were probably very aware of it, and yet this was a no-brainer. It was acceptance of a new believer.
0: Yeah, and and just to kind of riff on that a little bit. Remember, I mean, I kind of um, do a little uh, imaginative interpretation. If you did read the chapter I attached, where this eunuch had traveled over a thousand miles to go to the temple in Jerusalem because he's a seeker, but he would not have been let in because he's a eunuch, because he's an Ethiopian. And so, for instance, that question, you know, what is to prevent me from entering the temple at Jerusalem to worship the living God? A lot. All the rules, they prevent you. You can't do it. You're not welcome, right? So he kind of asks the same question. Well, what is to prevent me from believing the good news and being baptized? Nothing. Not being a eunuch not being an Ethiopian, not being sad, not, there's nothing to prevent you, so let's go do it. And, you know, so contrasting this with Ananias and Simon, what prevents us from being part of the church and obeying the gospel? It's when we get in our own way, you know? It's whenever we lie to the Spirit and we hold back a portion of money and we're not fully honest, you know, in the case of Ananias. It's when we think we can buy the Holy Spirit with our money and use the power for personal gain. That's whenever we get in trouble. But the traditional things that kept people out, right, they're not barriers anymore. The whole thing's been ripped open and all people are welcome. But once we're in, there's expectations that we, you know, actually learn who God is and what it means to follow Jesus. What do you think of this story? Just kind of what resonates with you? what questions does it leave you with, and, and what do you learn about evangelism from looking at this this story?
3: It me that Philip was snatched away, that verb snatched, I mean it's like it's risky business to listen to the Holy Spirit, and you, you get called to this desert road, and you think you're doing what you're supposed to, and all of a sudden you're in a different part and <laughs> asked to do something else. I don't know. It used to terrify me that if you embarked on the will of the Holy Spirit, you would be snatched away when you least expected it.
0: So so Jackie, let's build on that a little bit, because this is not the first time in scripture that God snatches people away. Um, and I'm not thinking about like Elijah and the chariot or anything. Can you think of the opposite of Philip? Someone who God snatches away to go preach the gospel to an outsider, but who doesn't respond as well as Philip. Does anyone in the Old Testament come to mind? Jonah. Bonnie? Jonah. You get the A-plus in biblical studies for the day, <laughs> Bunny. Yeah. <laughs> it's Jonah, right? And so, remember, all of this would have been in their consciousness. So, what happened to Jonah? Jonah... Uh, is hanging out one day, and the spirit, you know, says, hey, Jonah, let's head down to Nineveh. You know, there's some some lovely people there who I want to go save, heal, and love on. And Jonah basically says, you're crazy, God, I hate the Ninevites, I'm going to board a ship to Tarshish, and I'm going to sail away. That doesn't go well, because what happens, Jonah is snatched uh, out of the boat, thrown into the sea, swallowed by a fish, and spit up on the shore of Nineveh right? Um, and so, like, in a sense, God has always been the primary actor. The Spirit has always been snatching people up in order to give them work to do. It kind of raises the question, are we going to go willingly like Philip, or are we going to go kicking and screaming like Jonah? Diane?
4: Okay, I when I initially read this, and they talk about the Spirit snatching him away, I kind of thought, Oh, God didn't want him to baptize this person who was so different. But from the conversation we're having, it sounds like God was pleased that he did that. So I don't quite understand why the spirit snatched him
0: away. Yeah, great question. <laughs> and I mean, maybe I'm
4: missing something. I don't know.
0: <laughs> does, someone, does someone have a raised hand to comment on that? Bunny?
5: I think it's because Philip had fulfilled what God had in mind for him. He did what God sent him to do, therefore he didn't need to stay anymore and you know the unit need to keep going on his trip and reach more people, I guess by
4: going well philip places.
5: was then, I, well, it says that. Philip appeared at asotis and, and then preached the gospel until he reached Caesarea. And I have maps in the back of one of my Bibles. And um, he was below Jerusalem with the eunuch in the wilderness okay. down there. And right. Aesotus is near the Mediterranean. So he went north and west. And Caesarea is north of there. Okay. So did not he... He just, you know, was sent to a different part of the country.
0: Yeah, I okay. think. I and my think little is... note
5: in my Bible says that he lived for like 20 years in Caesarea. Yeah.
0: Mm. Okay. So I think. Thank I you. Think, yeah, I mean, I think that that's the emphasis that um, that the spirit's on the move. There's work to do. And you completed that project. Let's give you a different assignment. Uh, is kind of how I read that.
4: Okay. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Barbara.
1: um sort of going back uh earlier in the in the story about philip and the eunuch it seemed to me that um you know philip absolutely was you know he was out there and he was gonna you know he 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 was on a mission to you know share the good news um but he didn't just go to the you know chariot and immediately start Uh, preaching, but he, you know, he opened the door and said, you know, do you understand what you're reading? And um, the eunuch might've said, well, yeah, I do. You know, I've been studying this for a long time. And, and so the eunuch opened the door to hearing more before Philip stepped through it. I mean, he, he read, he waited and, and sort of read the, um, the tea leaves before he jumped in, before Philip jumped in.
0: Well, and he was invited in, to your point. So, Rhoda, I want to hear from you in a bit, um, but I think that's an important distinction. The spirit said, join the chariot. It didn't say barge in. It said, join the chariot. Uh, and then he did, he asked some questions, and it says the eunuch invited Philip in. That is how it always works. The spirit will never say, go beat someone over the head and force this message down their throat. It's gonna say, hey, go join Mary, go join Jackie, go join um, a bunny. And what does it mean to join people in today's world? It means to spend time with them, to hear their story, to get to know them. We literally and metaphorically join them. We stand beside them and in time, they may invite us in. They also may not invite us in. And if they don't invite us in, they don't invite us in. But the Spirit tells us to join people, uh, but that person that has to invite us in for us to have any real opportunity to share our faith with them. And I think that's a very important kind of distinction that we see embedded in this chapter. Rhoda, I saw you had your hand up.
3: Um, Yeah, Um, I was thinking also about the eunuch who could have said, well who are you and as you mentioned he was a seeker and so he was open to somebody sharing that news with him but he could have done the opposite and said i don't know who you are what makes you think you
0: know know it all absolutely absolutely and that is always something that could happen
2: i think the other thing and it's part of a little bit more of what we're talking about it it's about relationship again getting to know somebody which is what the additional reading was about also know yourself, know the people. So you, you make a connection so that you even know how to share and, and um, just how to reach out and touch and, and make that relationship work. It, if the eunuch was totally aware of all this, it might the story might have turned out that Philip joined him and Philip learned a lot. I mean, it, we're always growing. And so just even making this relationship of an apostle with someone that's very different, it's a loving thing. And who knows if this is the first time Philip had somebody this different. I mean, I don't know. So I just think, and I, and and in the troubles in the world we have today, when you know somebody on the other side of a, of an argument, you you're way more open to just being able to listen and get it from them versus when you don't. And I, so I think that relationship piece is key to uh, disciples, apostles, believers sharing the word as just as our relationship with God, with Jesus is what it's all about.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's brilliant, Mary. And, and, you know, it's easier said than done, right? I know that for some of our relationships where there's a lot of pain there or a lot of anger or strong emotion, we don't just metaphorically join the chariot, you know? Um, however, I do think that the book of acts challenges us because this movement, this message really is for the whole world. And, um, You know, if we were to ask the question, you know, who is it that you have the hardest time with in today's world, whether it's someone you actually know or um, more of a symbolic figure, a representative of a particular ideology or world philosophy, right? Um, Part of what's being implied is that no one is more different from Philip than an Ethiopian eunuch. Like, no one is more on the other side of the aisle, so to speak. And look how this went down. So if nothing else, let's look at that in our own life and maybe allow God to break down some of the barriers that we are very quick to erect. Um, Okay, I don't want to leave you on that note. I want to ask a question. And I want to invite everyone just to pop in and to answer this question in a sentence. No one has to, right? But we see here in one of the verses at the end, then Philip began to speak, and starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. He proclaimed the good news about Jesus. That's what the Bible says. Doesn't tell us what that good news is from Philip's perspective. So, in a sentence or two sentences, we don't need a the theological treatise here. If someone were to say, Hey, what's the good news about Jesus? What's your answer to that question? And just far at will, what's the good news about Jesus in a sentence or two?
4: Well, I think of it as being Jesus is our Savior for eternal life in heaven because we are forgiven our sins through the grace of God, through Jesus' death on the cross, and his resurrection is the salvation that we will also be in heaven our spirit will be in heaven after our earthly body is gone here and hopefully we'll be in relationship with those people that were important to us in our lives and are also in heaven
0: diane thanks for going first i appreciate that rhoda good news about jesus jesus loves us all that's pretty good too who else good news about jesus On 316. (laughs) Mine was the same
1: as Rhoda's. You know, God just absolutely loves us from top of our head to the tip of our toes.
0: Okay. Everything in between. Jackie, please repeat what you said.
3: With love comes forgiveness.
0: With love comes forgiveness. Okay. Who else?
3: I think for me, it's that.
2: Jesus promised that his father's house has many rooms and lately I'm bringing that into um, my life that there are places and many rooms for us right here in this realm to not not forget it that you're still
0: you're still belonging amen that's great and then the the good news is literally gospel and by reading the
2: gospel and how Jesus lived and what Jesus showed us that we, how we should live, then that helps us develop those deep relationships. And for me, I would not be a good, well, I'm now getting off, but anyway, um, uh, you know, it's, um, they will know we are Christians by our love and by loving everyone, like Jesus loves us, we can
0: spread that. Sometimes without saying a word. Well, oh yeah, that's saying, Francis would preach the gospel when necessary, use words. There you go. That's good. That's good. Has anyone else not shared the good news about Jesus who wants to?
5: It's kind of like what everybody said.
0: Yeah. Well, y'all are good. I might might have to put y'all in the pulpit soon. (laughs) I was
1: thinking that Jesus also makes us a little sad. Like, like, wherever we're at and wherever we haven't been for a long time.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, well, one thing that is certainly true, Chris, is that, um, you know, the, the gospel would say that Jesus knows our sadness, that he's felt our sadness, and that he is with us in our sadness. Um yeah. So, two things I want to say uh, as we wrap up. Number one is... Uh, because the point of the book of Acts is to take our place as, you know, one of Jesus's witnesses, part of being a witness is knowing what to say. And so it sounds like most of you have, you know, something of an answer that if you get invited into the chariot of someone and they say, you know, what's the deal with this Christianity thing, you at least have something you can say, right? You know, the good news of Jesus. But I, I also want to point out, there's one thing, um, that I think I want to add, because everything y'all said is brilliant and good. And the good news of Jesus isn't, I mean, it's a, a thing with unending depths, right? So that's why many things can be on the right path here. But we didn't really say anything about the creation. You know, God so loved the world, the created order. And part of the good news of Jesus is not just that relationships will be restored, not just that life is eternal, not just that we have a template on how to live, but that the whole creation itself, uh, every animal, every tree, every, you know, every created thing is also something that God loves and intends to save and restore in the fullness of time. And, you know, as we see hurricanes ravage the Gulf Coast and as we see fires destroy or, well, I know fire serve an ecological purpose, but as we see kind of creation and groaning from time to time, it's good to be reminded that God also loves this world. It's a beautiful world, and that whatever it means for the world to be saved, this too will be part of the good news about Jesus. Martin Luther was once asked, Luther didn't always get it right; a man with many issues, he was also brilliant in some respects, but one thing that he said that uh he beats everyone on this this question. Someone asked him, "Okay, if you knew Jesus Christ was coming back tomorrow, what would you do?" And Luther's answer to that question was, "Well, that's easy. I'd plant a tree." And his <laughs> rationale was that when Jesus comes to watch that tree bloom and praise God, you know, all at once, it'd be a sight to be, you know, to behold. So I'll leave us with with that little tidbit because I think it's an interesting, interesting thing. Um, any, any concluding questions or comments about our conversation today? All right. Well, I want to thank you all very, very much. And uh, between now and when I see you again, please don't try to purchase the Holy Spirit. It didn't work out well for Simon. Um, Uh, and it probably won't work out well for us, but we'll just keep walking this road together, and thank you for being part of the study. It's one of the highlights of my week.